Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Refresh My Heart in Christ. Nothing refreshes a man's heart like gazing into the eyes of Jesus. His presence ushers in grace and peace and love and joy and acceptance and forgiveness and salvation and comfort. But what about those times when we don't feel the presence of Jesus? Friends, it is in those times that our hearts are best refreshed by putting ourselves in remembrance that we have an inheritance that cannot perish and we have a hope that can never fade. Meditating on these truths always refresh my heart in Christ. Today I want us to see that we are no longer under the law, we are under grace. We can gaze into the eyes of our lover Jesus as we embrace the cascading fountains of Daddy's love. We are no longer married to our first husband, Mr. Law. We are legally joined to the altogether lovely one. His name is Jesus. The hope that you and I possess continually refreshes our hearts in Christ. Through the message today, I want you to see the importance of every song we sing and every sermon we preach or every song you listen to and every sermon you listen to. Finally, I also want us to see that condemnation is not our portion. The Lord is our portion and the one who refreshes our heart. In Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 24, we find this wonderful truth. He said, the Lord is my portion saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. You know, I believe when Jeremiah penned those words, I don't think that he was nonchalant about this, that he was just really flippant about it. I think when he penned these words, there was an energy that was brewing on the inside of him. When he said, the Lord is my portion, literally the word portion means inheritance. He was saying, the Lord is my inheritance. And then he said, saith my soul. So soul, as we have come to know over the years, means your mind, it means your will, it means your emotions. And I believe Jeremiah was saying, every part of me rejoices as I'm penning this, that the Lord is my portion. Therefore, watch what he says, will I hope in him? Now that word hope comes up a lot. You tell somebody something and they say, well, I hope so. Well, you know that that's probably a different kind of hope than what Jeremiah is speaking about, right? But then ask yourself the question, how deep is this hope? How revelatory is the hope that he's talking about? And I didn't realize how deep it was until the Holy Spirit took me to a place and opened this word hope up, and I thought, wow, look what you've hidden inside of that one little word that we think every time we hear, we know exactly what that means. Oh man, it's so much deeper. This hope has Christ hidden into it. The English word hope comes from the Hebrew word yachel, yachel. Yachel is made from three Hebrew letters. Do you see the three Hebrew letters in red? Reading from right to left, we see the Hebrew letters Yod, He, Lamed. That is the Hebrew word for hope. It is the word Yachel. Yachel begins with the Hebrew letter Yod. Yod is the smallest of the letters of all of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters, and Yod is the smallest of all the Hebrew letters. The stroke of the pen that makes the letter Yod is used to form every single other Hebrew word. If you look at every single Hebrew word, you'll find that Yod. It always incorporates the Yod. God used letters as building blocks when he began creation. Yod actually speaks of God's omnipresence because he is in literally everything. I want you to take a look at what these letters actually mean. Yod is the first of those Hebrew letters. Every single letter has a picture. The picture for Yod is hands reaching out. Do you see the hand reaching out? That is what Yod 
means. Now, the second letter, he. He is the second letter of the Hebrew word yachel. I want you to see what the picture for he is. It's man with arms raised. Now, lamed. The picture for lamed is the shepherd's staff. We're talking about the Hebrew word yachel, which is where we get our English word hope from. So when we put these three Hebrew letters or these three Hebrew pictures together, we discover the hidden affirmation and assurance of our hope. Reading from right to left, yod he lamed. It literally is hands reaching out to us from the man with raised arms, the one who holds the shepherd's staff. So cool. And God hid that in that little word hope when he says, this is the kind of hope that you have. It's my hands reaching out to you with my shepherd's rod. So the question becomes, who is this man? Friends, I want to tell you something. I could not have made this up in a million years. It is obvious that this man is Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. We can see now. We can look back. We're no longer under the shadow. They were under the shadow. Jeremiah was under the shadow. We're under the substance. We're in the substance, in fact. So it's easy for us to look back. He was looking ahead, penning something that said, this is so powerful, but I don't fully get the whole picture. It's Christ. It is Jesus. He is the man in the middle, just like he was when he was crucified. The Bible says he was crucified in the middle between two thieves. He is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it always signifies grace. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. They associate grace coming by Jesus Christ. But just in case there's any doubt as to whom this shepherd's staff belongs to, because somebody could say, you know, there's, there's been a lot of shepherds, Mark. How do you know this is the staff of Jesus himself? I want you to look at something that I put up on the screen. It's called the Linear Hebrew Letters. Reading from right to left, Aleph, Bet, Gemel, Dalet, Che, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tate, Yod, Kaf, Lamed. Lamed is the twelfth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Remember, the picture associated with Lamed is the shepherd's staff. So the question becomes, do you notice that one of the Hebrew letters stands head and shoulders above all the other letters? It is the Hebrew letter Lamed, the shepherd's staff. Now, I didn't take that letter and make it bigger. It is a bigger letter. It rises above all of the Hebrew letters. Since the Lamed towers above all other Hebrew letters, it is said by the ancient scholars, it represents Malek Hamalakim, which translates as the king of kings. So when they look at that letter, Lamed, those ancients say, that is Malek Hamalakim. It represents the king of kings. And they didn't even know what they were saying when they came up with that. But they said, this letter, it towers above all letters, and it has a shepherd's staff, and it is the king of kings. That gets me excited. Friends, I want to tell you something. The hope that we have in Lamentations 3.24 speaks of a great shepherd, a Jesus shepherd, the one that holds that staff above all things. He is Jesus Christ, Malek Hamalakim, the king of kings, hands reaching out to us from the man with raised arm, the one who holds the shepherd's staff. The Lord is my portion, Jeremiah said. Therefore, will I hope, will I yachel in him. I want you to know something. Every time you begin to read that word hope, in particular in the Old Testament, it's translated as yachel. I want you to see how deep that hope that we have is. This is not the hope that the world has. We have a different hope. It's the greatest hope. It's a hope that towers above all other hopes. 
I'm not going to make any apologies for getting excited. That just excites me that I have a hope that is awesome, that never fades, never runs out on me. It's a wonderful, wonderful hope. From the letter Yod, which is the least in size, to the letter Lamed, which is the greatest in size, we are reminded of this truth found in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. It says this, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. From the Yod to the Lamed, they shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, their sins and their lawless deeds will I remember no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Does that do anything to your heart? It does to mine because it ties in and it shows me from the least to the greatest and it ties it right into Hebrews chapter 8. It speaks of my covenant, and it speaks of the old covenant that faded away and disappeared. I believe there was a time that David was looking over the pasture. I always say this when he penned Psalm 23. And he begins by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Now watch verse 3. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The word restoreth there literally has the attitude of returning it back to its original condition. See, when you restore a vehicle, you're restoring it back to its original condition, or it's not really restored, it's modified. Restore means I'm taking you back to the original condition, the condition of innocence, the condition of purity. And David said, he restoreth my soul. He turns it back to its original condition. David was saying, he, who's he? He's talking about a shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Well, we know the shepherd's Christ now. And he said, he restoreth my soul. The soul means the heart. It means the heart of man. And when you look that word restore up, it literally says refreshes. David's shadow statement was simply this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He refreshes my heart in Christ. Oh, he didn't even know what he was saying. We can look back and see that now. He refreshes my heart in Christ. Before the spiritual footings were poured for this ministry, we set our hearts in agreement that we would gaze into the eyes of Jesus. That every message we would preach and every song we would sing would ultimately point to the altogether lovely one. His name is Christ. He is the sole foundation by which Triumphant Grace Ministries rests upon, and it's only by Him that this ministry consists. I was there in the beginning when our daughter Sarah and her mother sorted through dusty song binders. Song binders that had not been touched by Sarah in more than 10 years. This sorting of songs took place on the threshing floor of my own living room. I know, I remember, I was there. Like a good daddy and like a good husband, I just kept my mouth shut. Let me say this. The majority, not the minority, the majority, not a few, the majority of the very same songs that we had sung earlier, 10 years before that, in our previous ministry, did not make the cut for Triumphant Grace Ministries. And I'll tell you why. It's because they did not endorse the loveliness of Jesus throughout the entire song, or they did not draw our hearts and our attention to a finished work. When I had to pick the songs out for this morning, I thought, Lord, we've been down this road so many times. We've sang these same songs over and over again. I understand what Sarah goes through when she has to pick songs, but I want you to know something. There are not that many to pick from that point to the altogether loveliness of Christ, and I would rather sing the same ones over and over again when they validate the awesomeness of my God rather than to sing something so crazy. Now listen, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but what you take in impacts you. Convincing Sarah to let go of certain songs was like convincing a baby he doesn't need his pacifier. 
Convincing Sarah to let go of certain songs was like trying to convince a toddler that you don't need the nightlight. I want to tell you something. It didn't happen without some fussing. Nonetheless, songs of mixture, songs of old covenant, songs that asked and cried out to God for stuff that we've already got, songs that pointed to self rather than to our lovely Savior, flew away like chaff in the wind. You say, Pastor Mark, can I listen to any sermon I want? Can I listen to any song I want to? And the answer is absolutely. You sure can. You go ahead. But ask yourself this question. What is it that keeps unraveling my ball of yarn? See, your brain looks like a ball of yarn, right? And it's got one string poking out. And just when you think you've got it settled in your heart that I am the righteousness of God in Christ, Satan or somebody will come along and they'll take that one string and they'll throw your ball of yarn all over the place and now it's all unraveled. I want you to ask yourself that question. What is it that keeps unraveling my brain, my ball of yarn? I'll tell you what it is. It's a word that does not line up with the heart of God. And now we get that rolling around in our brain, in our noggin. We start mixing these things together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, I think sheds a little light on it. The Apostle Paul said, All things are lawful, that is, morally legitimate, permissible. But not all things are beneficial or advantageous. All things are lawful, but not all things are constructive to character and edifying. I like this one the best. And edifying to spiritual life. In the light of that verse, the verse you're looking at right now, in the light of that verse, let me ask you this question. Would it change the climate or the stability of your home if you insisted on calling your spouse by the name or the nickname or the pet name of a spouse that you had several years ago? Would it change the climate of your home? Come on, help me out here now. Oh, it changed the climate and it changed it that quick. Likewise, it changes the climate of our own hearts when we sing songs and listen to messages that exalt our first husband, Mr. Law. It keeps pulling that string on that ball of yarn and we're all over the place. I have learned over time to just to say, listen, if this isn't right, don't let it filter in. Now listen, I know it's hard to say something like this because people think you're commanding me to do No, I'm not commanding you to do anything. Talk to the Lord about this thing. Take in things that nourish your body that are not full of empty calories or poison. Take in things that nourish your spirit, man. Nourish your soul. Nourish your body. Nourish your marriage. Nourish every ounce of you. Listen, I was married to Mr. Law at one time, but I want to tell you something. I deleted all of his contact information when the message of grace began to drip in my heart. I took all of his pictures out of my photo albums. And I want you to know something. I'd never look to him for wisdom or direction. Ever. According to Romans chapter 7, we are no longer married to Mr. Law. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction, and that means power or dominion or authority. He said the law has authority over a person as long as he lives. Now, at first you go, oh, wait a minute now. I'm alive. So that means the law has authority. Let's just keep on reading, okay? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. Now, watch these next five words. But if her husband dies, not if she dies, if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, Therefore always means for that reason, for that reason right there. I just told you what the reason was. For that reason, therefore, my brethren, oh, I love these words. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Let me share with you a few things that I know about Mr. Law, okay? I don't want to give him too much space here, but let me share with you a few things I know about Mr. Law. First of all, he is still alive. 
Mr. Law didn't die. Jesus died. Jesus died. He's the husband. They talk about that died. The Bible tells us that he died for our sins and that he died once for all. When Jesus died, we died with him in his body. You see that right there? We died with him in his body. Having been declared dead to Mr. Law, we were legally joined to Christ. And we were raised with him from the grave in resurrection life. Embracing these truths refresh our hearts in Christ. We are not in adultery. We have one husband, and his name is Jesus. Mr. Law was present at the wedding ceremony when the bride was married to Christ. You say, how do you know that? Because he walked down the aisle in you. Before you were married to Christ, he was in you. He was present at the wedding ceremony because he walked down the aisle inside of us. This is the weird thing that I felt the Holy Spirit say to me last night. It was the only ceremony that I know of that a funeral and a wedding took place simultaneously. Isn't that weird? I mean, nobody in their right mind would say, you know, we're going to get married, but let's just wait for someone to die and we'll just have one ceremony all at once. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? No, but that's what happened. He walked in the church with you. He walked down the aisle with you. He stood at the aisle as you stood in front of Jesus, giving your heart to him, giving your life to him, and you died to Mr. Law. There was a funeral that day and a wedding ceremony. We died to Mr. Law because we died in the body of Christ, and we awakened in Christ with resurrection life. Mr. Law was a terrible husband. He always picked on us, and he demanded perfect performance. He hung the yoke of the Ten Commandments around our neck like a millstone. He was a fault finder and never paid his bride a compliment. He never told his bride that he loved her. He never told her that she was pretty. He never once held the door for her. He never took her out to dinner. He was exasperating and cold and absolutely had no sense of humor. He was stiff and rigid and didn't care about his wife's feeling. He never slept. He never took a day off. And he always had his wife under the microscope and micromanaged every single thing she did, every little move she made. He always had to have input. Well, I found out that doesn't go over very well even in the natural at my house, much less that. Why would anybody want to be married to someone like that when we have Jesus, the one who refreshes our hearts with good things so that our youth is renewed like that of the eagle? Oh, man, let me give you the most classic example of a song that does not endorse the loveliness of Jesus throughout the whole song and draw our attention to his finished work. Now, I have mentioned this song before, but I've never really explained it. It's the song called Create in Me a Clean Heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let me tell you something. Those are wonderful words if you're an unbeliever. But here's the problem. Unbelievers aren't singing this song. Believers are singing this song. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The problem with the lyrics is that we are begging God to do for us what he has already done. He has already given us a clean heart. He has already made us right in the spirit realm. He has already refreshed our hearts in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. From the Yod to the Lamed, from the least to the greatest, all things are become new. What is the scripture saying, by the way? It's saying our hearts have been refreshed in Christ. We've been restored. We've been turned back to the original condition. We've been sealed in a state of innocence. We are in Christ, and we are a new creation. If we are new creations with refreshed hearts in Christ, then why would we ever want to refer to ourselves again as sinners? I want you to hear me on this, please, okay? Why would you ever want to refer to yourself as a sinner if you've received a new heart from Christ? Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. 
No, you're not a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner. You are now the righteousness of God in Christ. I will agree with you if you said to me that a painter is someone who paints, that a gardener is someone that gardens, that a swimmer is one that swims, that a cook is one that cooks. You see, if we run down that road of logic, we'd say, well, then a sinner is one that sins, right? No, a sinner that the Bible talks about is not just defining one who commits sin. A sinner is a state of being. It's a condition of the heart. We are new creations because we are in Christ. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, Paul said these words, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, watch this now, the many were made sinners. Who's that one man? It's Adam, isn't it? Yeah. It says, through Adam, many were made sinners. Oh, but I love part B. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. That's Christ. But in Psalm 51 and verse 5, he says this. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Babies don't do anything wrong. How could he be a sinner? David said it happened at birth. He said, wait a minute, i got to back up a little bit. It didn't happen just exactly there. It happened from the time my mother conceived me. Life started right there. And he said, it was there that Adam's DNA was injected into me, and that's what made me a sinner. I didn't commit any sins to be sinful. David said, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Friends, let me tell you something. A dog is a dog at all times. If he rescues you, he's a dog. If he bites you, he's a dog. His performance does not change the fact that he is a dog. Likewise with ours, our performance does not change the fact that we are gloriously sealed in Christ, that we're new creations in Christ. Our performance does not change us and make us some sort of alien or hybrid Christian or something like that. We are in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That means God gave us a new heart. Oh, you say, wait a minute though, Mark. What about that scripture that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Man, Jeremiah wrote that in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. He wrote that under the old covenant. We are not under the old covenant. We don't have an old heart. We have a new heart. We're a new creation. So rightly dividing the truth and the word of God makes all the difference. He says, old things are passed away. You know, I bet this list is extensive. There's no way I could exhaust this list. I mean, I could tell you about old things for a long time, but let's just boil it down to two old things, okay? If you're going to walk out here and say, what are two old things that passed away? Number one, the heart. It was an old heart, and God gave us a new heart. You don't have an old heart anymore. You have a new heart. And let's just take one of the old things, and that's the old covenant. The old covenant passed away. Oh, the old covenant passed away. I'm in the new covenant. So whatever blank you want to fill in between there, I'm going to tell you something. You've got a new heart, and you're under a new covenant, friends. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Created me a clean heart. I know it's got a catchy tune. I can't tell you how many times I used to play that song and, and just walk around my living room. Sometimes I used to take that song to church, and I'd walk the aisles, and I'd get at the altar, and I'd cry my eyeballs out. Created me a clean and I was serious. God knew that, you know. He understood. He could read my heart, right? But it was always this mentality created me. I'm asking God to do something for me that he's already done, and I could almost feel his fingers going, Ah, oh, son. Oh, a few years from now, you're going to be preaching in Kenosha. You're going to be preaching the message of grace. You ain't never going to sing that song again. You ain't going to like that song someday. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Oh, well, let's move on, though. It says, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thine Holy Spirit from me. These lyrics just intensified, friends. Maybe that was the part that got me. I don't know. The message that God might cast one of his children from his presence or take his Holy Spirit from them has done more damage to the body of Christ than I believe any other message out there. I believe it really has. I do. Do you see the problem with those lyrics? It's old covenant thinking. 
And it propagates a message that is simply not true under the new covenant. It is not true. We have a new heart. We have a new nature. We have a new name. We have a new position in Christ. Singing a song like that is as ridiculous as leaving the wedding pictures from your first marriage on the wall after you've been remarried. That's going to breed conflict. That's going to bring discord. That's going to breed discontentment in your home. That's going to breed insecurity in your new relationship. It would just be weird, wouldn't it? Listen, I've been in more homes than you guys probably have been in combined. I worked in delivery for a lot of years. I worked in collection. I knocked on homes. I've been in more homes than probably all of you guys combined. It's what I did for a living for a long time, but I have yet to see two wedding pictures on the wall, one from the first marriage and one from the second marriage. I have never seen that before, and if I ever did, I would just think that is the weirdest thing. It changes the atmosphere of our home when we let Mr. Law hang on our wall, and we keep referring back to our first husband. Valerie and I were at her brother's house a couple of years ago, and we had a great time. We spent two or three days with them, wonderful time with one of her brother's. We were getting ready to leave, and we were all hugging at the door, you know, and I said goodbye to her brother and, and called him by name. See, he was married before, and his other wife had a different name. And so I hugged him, and I said goodbye, and then I hugged her, and I called her by the name of his first wife. I didn't realize I did it, but I could sense something just changed in the atmosphere. I didn't know what it was. And then my wife's like, you just called her by his first wife's name. I said, no, I didn't. She's like, yes, you did. I said, I did? I looked at her brother. He said, yeah, you did. If nothing else, it changed the climate and the atmosphere in me. And I felt like it created a strange environment there because I'm referring to her from someone that is no longer a part of this marriage. That's just dumb. You need to think through things. That's the problem with leaving early in the morning and staying up late. You don't know what you're saying. Your mouth starts saying stuff before your brain is really engaged. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. That is diametrically the opposite of what Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 37. He said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Please fasten your eyes on those words, I will in no wise cast out out. This is my inheritance. This is my portion. This is the hope that Jeremiah spoke about. This is the new covenant. And Jesus said, you can believe someone else if you want to, but I've come by today to tell you, I will in no wise cast you out because the Father has given you to me, and you are in me, and you are in the Father, and I'm in the Father, and we are one. And then how about that, take not thine Holy Spirit from me? Oh, let's skip up a few chapters. So let's stay in John. John chapter 14 and verse 16. Jesus said, and I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Watch these words now. That he may abide with you forever. Well, how in the world can he abide with you forever if you've got to worry about him getting cast out of you? Listen, in that one scripture, you see the entire Trinity. You see Jesus praying to his Father and talking about the Holy Spirit coming, right? And they're all in agreement. They're all in agreement. They said, yeah, you're going to live in us forever. Friends, Jesus came to take away our sins. He didn't come to take away the Holy Spirit. He came to take away our sins. Singing the wrong songs is as injurious as preaching the wrong sermons. I want to remind you again that I was there in the beginning when Sarah shed real tears as the songs of religion were discarded from her binders. I was there when Sarah's little teddy bears were taken away. I was there when Sarah was frustrated. Do you know she wanted to call it quits before we even sang our first song in this church? She wanted to call it quits, didn't she? She said, no, with tears, I can't do this anymore. You're taking away all my little teddy bears. Oh, but friends... I have also been there as I have watched this gospel of grace drip into my little girl's heart. Song by song, sermon by sermon has brought about the transformation she longed for. It's brought about the transformation that she was reaching for. Sarah 
has blossomed into a worship leader that makes my heart stand up with pride and say, that's my girl and that's my daddy she's singing about. That's my Jesus that's rising from the depths of her heart, from the depths of her soul. I want you to know that Sarah sings from the bottom of her heart. This room is not big enough for the crescendo that's building on the inside of Sarah. Amen. Well, over the years, it has been our great privilege to stand in the pulpit and lead our people in the triumphant processional of grace and then to lead them in the triumphant recessional of grace as we have proclaimed a message that has refreshed time and time again refreshed our hearts in Christ we refresh hearts by stripping away the grave clothes of wrong-headed thinking and reckless imaginations when those culprits go condemnation will go with them Trying to make fear or shame or guilt leave without addressing the culprit of condemnation is like trying to keep a boat floating without addressing the hole in the bottom of the boat. You see, you can scoop water from the boat until Jesus returns, but guess what? You're going to eventually get tired and your boat's going to eventually sink. The answer is not found in scooping water. The answer is found in repairing the breach, repairing that hole, restoring the hole in the bottom of the boat or in the bottom of your heart, restoring that hole, refreshing that hole, changing your mentality, changing your heart. Religion does not repair a hole in our hearts any more than a bucket repairs a hole in the bottom of a boat. Fasting is not our answer. Feasting is our answer and feasting on Christ. That is is your answer. It's your answer, sir. It's my answer. It's your answer, sir. It's mine. It's your answer, ma'am. It's mine. Feasting, not fasting. You want to fast? Go ahead. I've did some fasting. It's all right, but I'm telling you the answer is feasting on Christ. Come on, Steve. Help me preach back there, would you, man? I just might tag team off to you, man. Get you up here next. In the prophet Isaiah's day, God scanned the horizon of the earth and he found the creation that he loved with all of his heart, bound with chains of injustice and tied with cords of the yoke of oppression. And he said to Isaiah, come here, son, I want you to write these words. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, and then verses 11 and 12. God says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? You see, as Isaiah opens up, they're doing all this fasting, and God's just like, oh, man, you're just going without food. But that's not getting my attention. See, you can fast and have it not be spiritual at all. He said, well, let me tell you, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. That's what grace will do. That's what God's unconditional love will do for you. It will break every yoke of bondage, condemnation, fear, guilt, shame, all these things. It will break that stuff off of you. He continues in verse 11. He says, The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. It's literally talking about your body. It's talking about your constitution. He's going to strengthen your resolve and what you believe and what you stand for. He's going to strengthen the way he has framed you. He framed you out of the dust of the ground, which was nothing until he breathed into it the breath of life. And the Bible says man stood up a living being and he began worshiping the Father. He's going to take us back to that kind of constitution. And that's what God's message of love. And that's what God's message of compassion and his grace will do for us. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Wait a minute, I thought the Bible says love is the only thing that never failed. Oh, right there he says these waters never fail. Why? Because they've been given to us through the loving heart of God, our daddy. Verse 12, And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places, Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer or the refresher of paths to dwell in. How do we do that? How do we do this? 
by telling people that the hands of the man with raised arms are still reaching out to us with the shepherd's staff, the yod, the hay, the lamed, the malak hamalakim, the king of kings and the lord of lords is still reaching out, not just to unbelievers, but he's reaching out to his kids. He's reaching out to his, with daddy's message. Many believers' hearts have been breached with religion and rules and law and works. It's no wonder that Jesus stood in front of the Pharisees and released the words found in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Man, man I've been saved, what, 22 years? I don't think I've called one person a hypocrite yet. Now, I'm not saying it won't happen, but I'm just saying that I haven't done it yet. Jesus is really bold here. He says, you hypocrites. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Why did Jesus have to use such strong language? That's the question I asked the Holy Spirit last night. I'm like, Holy Spirit, why did Jesus have to seem like he got so rough with these guys? Such strong language. Because, number one, they wouldn't let go of Moses. They wouldn't let go of their dusty song binders. They wouldn't let go of their teddy bears. They kept sewing the ear back on. They wouldn't let go. The Pharisees wouldn't let go of their first husband, Mr. Law. They wouldn't let go of their pacifiers, and they insisted on having their nightlights when the light of the world was standing right in front of them, offering them grace, offering them salvation. You can live a life where you can be so totally free. And they kept saying no no, we want Moses. They slapped the face of the man with arms raised, hands of mercy, reaching out to them with the shepherd's staff. I want you to read it again. Look at it there. Woe to you teachers of the law. Jesus told them plainly that the law will make you beautiful on the outside. Oh, it'll clean you up. It'll make you beautiful on the outside. But it leaves a man dead in his sin on the inside and full of everything unclean clean. If we back up a verse and we look at the verse that he spoke to them just before this one, it's Matthew chapter 23 and verse 26. He said, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. You see, the law puts the emphasis on cleaning the outside of the man, and the work is never done. Grace puts the emphasis on cleaning the inside of the man, and it's a finished work. It's a one-time work, and Jesus did it all. The law will nurture this mindset of the absence of sin, the absence of sin, the absence of sin, the absence of sin. When the Holy Spirit was telling me that, because people walk around going, I can't sin today, I can't sin today. Oh, God, help me that I don't sin. The absence of sin, the absence of sin. I thought about that Kibbles and Bits commercial. I mean, that dog's running down the sidewalk. It was from the 1980s. Maybe some of you might be old enough to remember it. And that dog, you can hear what he's thinking. Kibbles and Bits, Kibbles and Bits. I'm going to get me some Kibbles. He's got a one-track mind. Kibbles and Bits, Kibbles. I'm going to get me some Kibbles and Bits. That's what the law does for you. The absence of sin. The absence of sin. Friends, I got a better thing for you. The presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. The presence of grace. The presence of love. Forget about thinking about how you're not going to miss the mark and how you're not going to sin. The presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. The presence of grace. Oh, man. We have to change our mindset. There has to be a change of heart. The Bible declares in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, for as the thoughts of his heart are, so is he. In other words, wherever the mind goes, the man will follow. If I don't like what I see in the mirror, it's not because my mirror has a problem. And it's not even because I need a face transplant. It's because I need a heart transformation. It's just as simple as that. It's an opportunity for us to remind ourselves every time we look in the mirror, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And my daddy likes what he sees in the mirror. There is nothing wrong with me and there is nothing wrong with you. We are made in the likeness and the image of our daddy God. We were made in his likeness and his image and we look just like him. Amen. Wrong-headed thinking and reckless imaginations are like putting four professional football players in a Volkswagen Beetle. You know, it won't take you very long to figure out there's more load than that little car was meant to carry. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, casting all your care upon him 
for he careth for you. One of those cares we get to cast is fear. The Bible tells us to cast all of our cares upon him. People are afraid of many things. One of the ones at the top of the list is public speaking. Then they're afraid of flying in airplanes. I don't know what the deal is, but they're afraid of the dark. They're afraid of sickness. They're afraid of death. They're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of failure. If we wrestle with all these things that we're afraid of, that means we could spend forever casting all these different fears on Him. Let me share with you the easiest and quickest way to rid ourselves of fear. You ready for it? Address the deeper root, which is condemnation. Condemnation. You see, in the absence of condemnation, there is no fear. There is no care to cast. And that's why Romans chapter 8, verse 1 always says, there is therefore now no condemnation. That word no, udice, literally means not even one. Not even one condemnation. It seems like every little child goes through the stage of being afraid of a monster. What causes that? Wrong-headed thinking and reckless imaginations. My wife, I think, told the story when Sarah was little, she was afraid of a monster in her closet. There was a monster in my closet, Mom, and it always leaves when you come into the room. When you leave, the monster comes back. I can hear it over there in the closet. And my wife would try to rationalize it out of her and tell her, there is no monster daughter. There is no monster darling. But Sarah insisted there was a monster and then my wife said, I've had enough of this. And one night when Sarah was calling for her, my wife grabbed a baseball bat. And she came into Sarah's room and she opened up the closet and said, okay, that's it, monster. And she started beating everything within sight. Bang, 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 just having a fit. Bang, bang, there. Turns out, daughter, you were right. There was a monster, but I just condemned the monster to death. And after that, that little girl was never ever again afraid of a monster. See, the monster of condemnation, the monster of fear can just overwhelm us. We think he's hiding under the bed. We think he's lurking in the shadows of our closet. All these different fears that we wrestle with, but we've got to rise up and we've got to say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I am the righteousness of God. I am accepted in the beloved. I am the betrothed of Jesus. Friends, that monster is no match for the hands of the man with raised arms reaching out to us with the shepherd's staff. Amen. There was a song that Joanne McFadder sang called Altogether Lovely. And I know it was based upon the exchange in Song of Solomon where the lover is speaking to the beloved and the beloved is speaking back and he says to his girl I believe it's in chapter 4 and verse 7 he says you are altogether beautiful he said I find no flaw in you and that song she sang and then wrote goes like this I heard the sound of lovers singing and I wondered at their song hopelessly lost in each other, gazes locked for so long. I longed to know what they knew, but then I caught a glimpse of you. I can't believe you love me so. How was I to know you are all together lovely? That is why I love you so. You are all together lovely. How was I to know? Friends, I want to tell you something. The altogether lovely one lives on the inside of us. His name is Jesus. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Oh, friends, let me say something in closing. You will never know the loveliness I just spoke of apart from gazing into the heart of the grace man. When Jesus stood in front of Lazarus' tomb, the first thing he said, watch what he says, he says, take away the stone. He didn't say roll away the stone. He said take away the stone. Why is that significant? It's because if you roll something away, you can roll it back. You see, the stone represents, the, it's the metaphor for the law that we were under at one time. And when Jesus came, he said, wait a minute, I found that you were dead. And he said, I've got something. Let's first of all take away the stone. 
Let's get the Ten Commandments. Let's get the law out of your life. And then he was able to speak into the darkness of that tomb. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus got up and he walked out like a mummy, all bound in grave clothes. And I love the last thing Jesus said. He said it to Lazarus' friends who were standing there scratching their head in disbelief. He said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Friends, the ministry that we are in may or may not experience the raising of a dead man or woman. But I can tell you with absolute certainty that the ministry that we have been commissioned to is to take the grave clothes off of God's people and let them go. And as we speak words of unconditional love and unconditional acceptance and unconditional grace, that's exactly how we peel away the bandages, the grave clothes of condemnation and fear and old covenant mentality. How do you take the grave clothes off of God's people? Friends, it's simple. By telling people that the hands of grace from the man with raised arms are still reaching out to us with his shepherd staff. Malik Halakim, the king of kings, the good news is he is the one who refreshes our hearts in Christ. Daddy, I want to thank you. I have stood here and I have just delighted, absolutely delighted in revealing the hope that we have. It's not a hope that can chip, crack, peel, perish. It's a hope, Daddy. It's a hope that reveals the yod and the hay, the grace, and the lamed. It's the grace of God. That's the kind of hope we have. And I want to thank you, Father, that you have sealed us. You have sealed us in this state of hope. So, Daddy, I want to thank you that you are teaching us things so that when the enemy tries to speak into our hearts or well-meaning friends try to speak into our hearts, we will recognize truth. We don't need for you to create in us a clean heart. We already have one. We don't need for you to renew a right spirit within us. We already have one. Father, we are convinced that you'll never take thy Holy Spirit away from us. And Father, I want to thank you for your love for us today. I want to thank you, Father, for where you planted this ministry. And as she has developed, I want to thank you, Father, she has reached way beyond these four walls. She has reached to the other nations, the distant shores, the islands. They all have an opportunity to hear about this amazing grace. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.